Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This week's episode is brought to you by SKP Creative. SKP Creative wants to remind listeners that the November election is coming up. And while it's obviously an important national and regional election, the local ballot also includes a proposal to redevelop the Amarillo Civic Center which means the opportunity for you to make your voice heard about Amarillo's future. This proposal actually comes up in my conversation with this week's guest. To learn more about the proposal, visit buildingabetteramarillo.com and follow along on social media. Thanks again to SKP Creative online at skpcreative.com. Today's guest is Dr. Paul Matney. Now, I've known Dr. Matney since I enrolled at Amarillo College as a freshman in 1992. He was my faculty advisor back then. He was the professor for my mass media survey class and also the division head at the time. He went on to become the president of Amarillo College from 2009 until he retired in 2014. But Paul's connection to Amarillo extends way further than AC. He was the weekend weatherman for KVII and then KAMR from 1972 until 1991. He spent almost two decades as a high school baseball umpire. And if you've been to a football game at Dick Biven Stadium, you've probably heard his voice as one of the public address announcers. I haven't even mentioned any of the nonprofits and boards, but he's as deeply involved in the life of this city as anyone I know, even now in retirement. So it was a lot of fun to catch up with him for this episode. Here's Paul Matney. Paul Matney, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Jason. I'm really pleased to be with you today. Well, it's uh, it's my honor to have you. We've known each other for, what, almost 30 years? At least 25 years. We go back a um, Because you were my advisor at Amarillo College when I first, <laughs> before you were the president of Amarillo College back mm-hmm. then. So uh, I'm, I'm eager to talk to you in this format um, and I know we'll cover a lot of territory, but I want to start the way I start with all my guests and just ask you how you ended up here in the first place. So what brought you to Amarillo? My uh, story is pretty simple. I was born in Amarillo. Okay. Born in St. Anthony's Hospital, and uh, my mother also grew up here. My father was from Vernon, but I, so I just grew up here, went to Amarillo schools, went to Amarillo College my freshman year. I've always said that was one of the best decisions I ever made. Mm-hmm. I love the college, uh, my instructors. Transferred down to the University of Texas and uh, got a degree in journalism. Wanted to come back to Amarillo for a career. Wanted to work in radio and television as a broadcaster, primarily in news. And so uh, that's how I got here, and I just stayed. I always wanted to stay. I really, really still to this day love Amarillo. You never had anything tempting you in, in Austin to... Stick around there or anything like that? <laughs> well, I must say, this is my 25th year to have uh, season football tickets. Okay. But I'm not watching any games because we're, you know, they're having a situation with this COVID where they're really reducing uh, attendance. Yeah. But no, I wasn't tempted to stay uh, to work there. I wanted to come back to Amarillo. At one time, I even thought, uh, Maybe I should try to work for the Chamber of Commerce. But mm-hmm. uh, anyway, I, I went the educational route. It worked out really well well for me, and uh, I like it here. Tell me why you wanted to come back. That's that's not the experience for a lot of people. And, of course, right. this was, you know, your time frame is earlier than some of my guests have been. I mean, this was in, what, like the late 60s, graduated, early 70s? Graduated high school in 67 okay. from the old Amarillo High down on Polk Street. 
and enjoyed AC, but I, and my experience at the University of Texas was terrific, made a number of friends down there, learned a great deal. But my career path was set on uh, news, and primarily radio and television news. I had been a disc jockey in Georgetown while I was going to school at the University of Texas. I'll never forget getting up every morning at 4.30, <laughs> and I would uh, leave Austin about 5 and get to the station about 5.30, clear the Associated Press wire, put on a pot of coffee, mm-hmm. and at 6 o'clock sign on with the National Anthem. Okay. <laughs> So, uh, and I did stay with that station uh, even after I graduated for a while. But I married an Amarillo girl. Her family was here. Uh, my family was here. And I just thought, you know, I want to get back and see if I can get in the Amarillo media market. And so tell me, once you got back here and you entered that market, what were some of the things that you did? Well, when I came back, I decided, first of all, to start working on my master's degree at WT as a teaching assistant, and that's where I fell in love with teaching. But Jim Pratt, the former news director at Channel 7, and Jim was the one who put together the Pro News format, and Mm -hmm. and he had dominant ratings for a number of years. He was uh, going to school at WT, working on his undergrad, and he saw me on campus one day, and he said, hey, do you know anything about the weather? (laughs) And I said... You said, yeah, I grew up in Amarillo. (laughs) Of course I did. I said, Jim, I had one course... Uh, in weather at UT for my my science, and it was regional dynamic climatology. And I made a C by the skin of my teeth. (laughs) He said, well, that's good enough. He said, we're (laughs) looking for a weekend weather guy. Why don't you come down and talk to Lynn Slesick and make an audition tape? So I I did. I went down there, and he took me out in the studio and showed me the weather board at that time. We were not doing computers. We had magnet numbers and, you know, frontal systems. And so he put a camera on me, and uh, he said, okay, just start out and give me a weather cast. I said, give you a weather cast? He said, just make up something. And so I did, and I, when I got through, I was just horrified, and I went home and told my wife. I said, well, go, there goes that opportunity. Yeah. But then in a few days, I, uh, I got a call from Lynn, and he said, well, you've got the job, and you'll start this weekend, and uh, we'll train you a little bit. You'll do five shows a weekend, two on Saturday and three on Sunday. And uh, that was really a good opportunity for me, and I enjoyed it. And so I was teaching primarily speech at that time. Later, I would take a full-time job at WT because the radio, television, mass com person went off to Colorado to work on his doctorate. And so what I did was finish my master's, and I started teaching full-time at WT and then working weather on weekends. And, and you that, did that for several years. Did, did weather for 19 years. Right. I always tell people I missed out on a lot of good ski trips on the weekend. Oh, man. And And... <laughs> Just I mean, just to put it in perspective, you know, today if you want to do weather casting, you know, on local news, even in a market like Amarillo, you have to be a meteorologist. You have yes. to have a degree. You've got a lot of training. That's like right. you said, you didn't have any of that. Your That's job right. was primarily communicating the information that they were giving you and, and right. telling viewers this is yeah. what's going to happen. You it, know, it was I was I was a weatherman. Yeah, know? we used to talk about weatherman. You know, and. But I had the, the privilege of working for two of the finest people in Amarillo. Lynn Slesick, I worked for Lynn over at Channel 7 for eight years, and then I went over to Channel 4 and worked for Roy McCoy for 11 years. And I just cannot tell you uh, how nice those fellows were to me. Really, really good, good weather guys and good people. And those are two legendary weather guys who were in this market forever. And, yeah. and Amarillo seems to attract a lot of those long-serving, you know, 
meteorologists at this point what? that in, in a, a a world where you know newscasters jump from one place to another right. they seem to stick here a little bit longer right. and that's you know this is an interesting weather market i mean meteorologists like the challenge of forecasting the weather in amarillo texas you know we've always said we can have four seasons in one day you know but uh you're right meteorologists tend to get here and like it and stay so you were you were doing that while continuing your education. Eventually, you finished up all of the the schooling aspect of it and moved right. into teaching. Tell me about that. Yes, uh, when I was a teaching assistant there for a couple of years, working on my master's, I was teaching primarily speech. But when our radio television mass comm person left to go to Colorado, there was an opening, and the department chair approached me and asked me if I would be interested, and I said yes, I would, and so. When I was hired, I began to then teach more radio, TV, mass comm courses and would complete a total of eight years at WT. And that was just, that's really where I fell in love with teaching. My parents were educators. Uh, my dad uh, was a former coach and a teacher and later a principal. And my mother was one of the best teachers that I've ever known at any level. And so it, the apple didn't fall very far from the tree. Right. But I really enjoyed it. And I could, I could work at the station, on the television station, on weekends. I could teach it during the week, enjoyed being around students. And so my eight years at WT, very formative for me, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. What year did you end up moving from WT to Amarillo College? Went to Amarillo College in 1979 okay. for this reason. Uh, at WT, we had one faculty member. We had no broadcast engineers. We had... Uh, television equipment that at that time, now this is this is back in the 70s, was not really good. We primarily had cast-off equipment. We had a little radio station that was 10 watts on campus. We celebrated. So you couldn't hear it if you crossed the street, right? <laughs> you, could, you could hear it in the dorms. Yeah. We just thought we were really something when we went to 100 watts. But once you got up on the top of Buffalo Hill, uh, you couldn't get it any right. further. And that created problems for me because I, I drove home to Amarillo every night and I couldn't listen to the station. And we had some episodes. I remember one time I got to work, my department chair, Dr. Walker, called me and said, Paul, I need to see you in my office in 30 seconds. <laughs> and I thought, this is not good. And he said, well, I guess you've heard what happened. I said, Dr. Walker, what happened? He said, well, you're disc jockey student on the air last night. These were during the streaking days. You've heard about streaking? Yeah. And he said he challenged one female dorm to have a streaking contest with a male dorm outside the library. And so needless to say, uh, yeah, that was an interesting day. The, the challenge, I guess, was accepted, and that led to some consequences. Yes. So you, you were talking about um, the difference at WT and then making that move to Amarillo College, uh, just even in terms of the equipment and the program there. What, what did you discover at AC? At Amarillo College, uh, they, had, they were operating a cable, cable channel too, and so they were actually producing programs using students primarily in production capacities, but we were airing those programs on cable channel too. Uh, they had three full-time broadcast engineers. Now, that was just unheard of. We had this great studio. When I was a freshman at Amarillo College in the spring of 1968, we built that building that you went to school right. in with the TV studio, the radio studio, FM 90, and it was just top-notch. Now, at that time, it didn't have any equipment in it, but when I went there in 79 on the faculty, it had all of this equipment, 
a first-class control room, master control. We were operating a cable television station and doing programs. It just we were ta- we were doing live all of our basketball games with a student crew. Hmm. We had uh, four cameras over there, cable laid underground to Badger Den, and so we would do the the girls' game and the boys' game, and it was just a great professional opportunity for me, but also for our students. We trained a lot of students, you know, uh, in that facility. And that's something that has been part of the DNA at Amarillo College since then. I mean, it it has always been, at least when you think of radio, TV, and broadcast, graphic design, journalism, a lot of those areas that you ended up being involved with was always at the top of its class and, and producing students who had gotten so much experience, hands-on experience in a college setting that they were practically, you know, hireable immediately upon graduation, which isn't always the case in settings like that. Exactly. You know, I look back when I was at the University of Texas, uh, they really didn't want students at KUT-FM. You know, they wanted them to stay away or KLRN television. Uh, It was verboten to get over there. Of course, there were 600 majors, you know, down there. But at Amarillo College... Uh, we gave our students the opportunity to broadcast on uh, what became, it was originally a 30,000-watt radio station. Uh, And we broadcast uh, many, many hours a day, signed on early and then signed off late at night. Then we had the cable television station. And then, as you know, in journalism, uh, the magazine uh, and also the newspaper, the Ranger, and then in graphic design, our faculty members and the equipment, you know, in those computer classrooms, photography was another one. So I agree with you. It was really a joy to be a part of such uh, an amazing and aggressive with well-equipped facilities that we have and that they still have at Amarillo College. Was that an intentional decision? I mean, I, I know a lot of it was in place by the time you got there, but, you know, through your roles with the communications department there and, and moving on to become president. I mean, did, did you continue to think this is one of our strengths is, is what we're the opportunities we're giving our students. This always has to be a priority. Absolutely. And I was hired by a woman named Joyce Herring and some people will remember Joyce. She was our department chair and Joyce had the dream of signing on a public television station Hmm. And it was many years we had to go to Washington, and it was a contested hearing before an, uh, an administrative judge in Washington. Uh, we were challenged by uh, a gentleman in Pampa who wanted to put a religious station on the air, and he wanted Channel 2. We wanted to put an educational station on the air. And Joyce gave us some great leadership at that time. She always had the support of the president of the college, uh, originally Charlie Lutz, Charlie wanted to announce um, that as the 50th anniversary gift to Amarillo College, we were going to give the community a PBS station. Hmm. Unfortunately, he died in office, literally in his office, and that was delayed for a number of years. But yes, uh, a lot of administrative support, good, strong faculty, engineering support, it all came together. uh, And the real beneficiaries of that were our students, I think. I want to ask you just because I know that, you know, your career in broadcasting and communications, covering all of those things, was also a period where that entire industry changed. Mm -hmm. I mean, you started seeing 
an expansion in broadcast TV. You began seeing VCRs being invented. You saw desktop publishing go from paste-up to Macintosh computers. You saw um, radio broadcasting go from analog to digital. I mean, all that stuff. And, And you're in a position as, you know, an academic who's already been trained who's already grown into his career. And I mean, literally you're having to relearn a lot of these things because you have to teach kids how to do it, (laughs) which is hard for any adult, you know? So tell me, tell me about navigating all that kind of stuff. It it was really a challenge. And, uh, you know, you look back and see how many changes and and you described it very well, a sea change in all of media. Uh, The sad thing about newspapers is newspapers business model has pretty well collapsed, yeah. and we, we see the uh, the effect of that. But <clears throat> you're right. When I started in broadcast, we were using four-inch. We called it quad, quad tape. It was four inches videotape. And, uh, and then we went through the electronic news gathering where we were actually one man banning it. You were, you, one person would go out, shoot live video. They would have microwave trucks that you would go out. Yeah. And, uh, and so certainly it was just changing, changing so rapidly. And it was a challenge to keep up with that. Thank goodness we had three engineers that did keep up with that. And always we, we tried to purchase state-of-the-art equipment. And, uh, but you're exactly right. It was, uh, it was a challenge to keep up with. Tell me about the process in your own career of moving from being in a teaching position, then, you know, uh, a department head position, and then moving into becoming the president at AC. Well, I started out at Emerald College in 1979. And just after a few months there, uh, over the Christmas holidays, our president at the time, John Munt, uh, kind of reorganized the college. And we went to a structure of having nine academic divisions. And so I found myself having been at the college for six years and just having a ball teaching class right. to assuming some academic administrative abilities. And I became division chair of, at that time, the Division of Mass Communication. It would later become Language and Communication because we added English, French, German, and Spanish. And then it would come language, um, communication, and fine arts. It would include art and theater and music. And I always remember my dean, Dr. Gene Bird, would say, Paul, let's go have coffee. And I said, okay. (laughs) What else are you going to add to my plate? (laughs) But every time he did that, we went to his favorite place, the donut stop, and he said, hey, Paul, you know, uh, so-and-so is retiring. And so rather than keep that small division there, I'm just going to, you know, give the English people and the foreign language people, and you're going to start supervising. And really, it was a great joy to do that because strong English department, strong foreign language. But then let's go have coffee. And a few years later, and it was, well, Dr. Roller's retiring. Um, Guess who's going to get to handle fine arts now? (laughs) So we ended up with this mega division. But Jason, it was a real pleasure because really enjoyed working with students, but I also enjoyed working with faculty. And one thing about our division chairs, which were really a dean level, uh, we were expected to teach and we wanted to teach. So it wasn't like going whole hog or 100%. Yeah, pure administration. Right. And to this day, I look back and my greatest joys in higher ed have been in the classroom Mm -hmm. and the interaction with students. And I guess I'm kind of old fashioned in the sense that I'm glad that I never had to teach an online class. 
And, and I teased Jill Gibson because I said, Jill, your, your online mass media survey class is a whole lot better than mine. But I like to see students sitting in seats and have that interaction. And uh, if I were teaching today, I would have to be teaching online. But I, I didn't get into that phase of it during my career. Tell me about the opportunity to take over the reins for the entire college when you became the president. What year did that well, that Come occurred in, uh, night, in 2008. Okay. 2008, Dr. Stephen Jones became ill and would eventually die of cancer. And I remember it was in our May board meeting of uh, 2008 up in Dumas at our campus when the board named me as acting president. And I actually had that position for about 12 to 14 months and uh, did that, and that was that was a challenge, of course. But when he passed away, then the board hired me full time, uh, and I retired in 2014. And to have that job, you know, after being a student at Amarillo College, after being a faculty member uh, at the divisional level, teaching, and I spent about three years as academic vice president. It was just uh, a great opportunity. To this day, I, I love the college. I love the opportunities that it provides for students. And so it was different, and I was not teaching anymore. Yeah. I always wanted to, and I thought, gee, when would I do that? <laughs> but uh, I just want to praise the good folks at Amarillo College. Uh, now, when you're in that capacity, of course, you always have personnel issues that you're dealing with. And, uh, you know, you have to roll up your sleeves and, and handle some things maybe that you'd rather not do. But uh, overall, it was a really great experience for me. Did it feel like a natural progression in your career? I mean, once you got to that position, did you feel like, okay, this makes sense? Or did you just sit there and think, I don't know how I ended up <laughs> you know, in charge of this college? That's a good question. And I think it did feel like a natural position. I had been at AC for so long, spent 43 years in higher ed and 35 of them at AC. And, uh, you know, I worked out under seven different presidents, hmm. uh, and I worked under one dean for 25 years, you know, Dr. Gene Bird, and he was highly respected and so forth. So I had some good role models. I really felt like I had to make a decision, did I want to apply for the presidency? And I thought long and hard about that. And I decided that I, I did because I knew you're going to have to go a long ways to find somebody that loves Amarillo College more than I do and to find someone that knows more about it. And I don't mean that in an egotistical sense, but just having been there. Yeah, you had the institutional <laughs> knowledge for right. sure. And so when I pulled the trigger and, you know, visited with my wife and said, yeah, I think, I think I'd like to apply for that, uh, and then was hired, it was, it was a, again, a real uh, great opportunity for me, and I enjoyed all of it. I, I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, I know that having been in that position, you know, you learned a lot, not just about Amarillo College, but about the community itself. I mean, that's um, where most of your students were coming from. I know AC has always been involved in the larger community. It's just, it just plays a central role here. So what, you know, in, in your 40 plus years serving in that capacity at AC, what did you learn about the city? What were some of the things that it kind of taught you? Well, I learned specifically why I, I love this town as much as I've loved it. You know, I, I remember telling the board on more than one occasion that about 30% of my time is spent representing Amarillo College in the community, mm -hmm. serving on boards, whether it's the Amarillo Area Foundation, whether it's the Amarillo Symphony Board, 
whether it's on a group of people trying to get national public radio here. Uh, and I always preach to our cabinet, the uh, leadership of the institution. I said, you know, when you coach a little league baseball team or when you coach a girls' kids incorporated basketball team, you've always got that Amarillo College sign around your neck. And so I always said the more we can get folks, AC folks, out in the community, being involved in the community, not only is that good for you and it's good for you know that organization, but it's good for the college because we are a community college and we need to be out and about. And so there was nothing that I enjoyed more as president than to have the opportunity to go out in the community and tell the AC story because it was such a positive story, yeah. and I was so dedicated to it that uh, whether it was a Rotary Club or whether it was the Chamber of Commerce or whatever, that was, that was a great joy, and that part of the job was really terrific. So I, I don't often get the, the chance to ask this, but you've been uh, retired now for several years. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your retirement, because this is not the kind of retirement <laughs> where you took off, you moved to Florida or Arizona right. or started you know, touring the, the U.S. Right. in an RV. Or, I mean, you, you are still planted here and you're still very involved here. Yes. So tell me and, about that. Well, I tell you what, I, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. And so I have enjoyed retirement. It is different. And <clears throat> you notice that immediately, obviously, when you know, you've been incredibly busy, and then suddenly... But I gave a great deal of thought before I announced uh, that I was ready to retire. And in 2015, I retired in August of 2014, but that was the time when this strategic plan for downtown Amarillo was getting going. And it was, you know, to build a, uh, a first-class hotel, a parking garage with retail space, and a multi-purpose event venue, which is a ballpark. Right. And I got involved in that, was really much in favor of it. And I've always admired city government. When I was a young man growing up, Ray Vahue was the mayor of Amarillo. And I admired Ray. He ran Panhandle Outdoor Advertising. But he was just a terrific mayor. And we had gone through some tough times. You know, the base closed in 1968. And the 70s were a tough time for Amarillo. But he and other businessmen and women got together and and pulled us through that, and I had always admired that. Um, I remember going to his office one time after I graduated from UT, and I made an appointment with him, and and he said, well, what can I do for you? And I said, well, I've always admired your uh, civic duty, you know, and and being mayor, and uh, I'd like to go to work for a person like you. And he laughed and said, well, thanks a lot, but I don't have a job for you. (laughs) But... uh, Anyway, it's, it's just a, a terrific place to be. And uh, another thing that I got interested in, I was telling you earlier in our visit, that uh, was the, the history of Amarillo. And uh, that became a, a real time-consuming and thoroughly enjoyable uh, project, hobby, you might say, is to find out as much as I can and then have an opportunity to share it to a small group, a larger group. And I still do that a little bit, but... Uh, that, that has taken a lot of time. And then serving on boards, I enjoy that. I'm on the Amarillo, Amarillo Area Foundation board right now. I'm also on a Westerners International board. I belong to a group called the Westerners, and we're interested in the study of the American West. Hmm. We meet every week and, I mean, excuse me, every month and have a program. Serving on the Panhandle Plains Historical Museum, and that's such a, a jewel that we have in the Texas Panhandle. So between board service and... Um, Staying busy, Wendy Swope and I had the opportunity to chair the Vote for Amarillo Committee for the ballpark. Right. 
and uh, went out and, and spoke to various groups. And we were so thrilled, Jason, in November 2015, out of 28,000 votes, we won by about 800 votes. Yeah, and that was, I remember how contentious that was. And, you yes. know, you're in a position in retirement, yes. you know, advocating for a vote for Amarillo's future that some people were yes. all in favor of and some people didn't appreciate. And how yes. did you feel being in kind of a controversial <laughs> position at that point? Well, I enjoyed Was that harder than running a college? Uh, I mean, no, it really wasn't because I was so devoted to what that renaissance of downtown Amarillo could do and could be. And I was so thrilled that the Emerald City Commission had endorsed it, and we wanted to win that vote, you know, that referendum. And so I think I, I remember going out to about 36 different presentations, and some of them were very difficult. There were a lot of naysayers, and, uh, you know, there are online, online social groups that were very opposed to it. But I just felt like uh, those of us that really thought that would be important, it would be a magnet for people to go downtown. And, you know, the inaugural season of the Sod Poodles could not have been more of a fairy tale. Right. A successful. You know, you had, we had everybody in town. That was the place to be. And you didn't have to be a baseball fan like me. You didn't have to know what an ERA was or a batting average. You could just go down there with your friends and have a great time. I went to the symphony uh, concert just this last weekend. Right, right. It was absolutely fabulous. And so uh, Wendy and I believed in that and, and went out and and fought for it. And yes, I know that, you know, there are people who voted against it, but I was amused. Some of the uh, naysayers said, well, you can't go through with that with only winning by 800 votes, to which I would politely remind them, well, I think we're living on under a lot of Supreme Court uh, decisions that are 5-4 decisions. So a win is a win is a win. Right. And 450,000 attendants the first year with the Sod Poodles. That's with 68 home games and four playoff games. We came in just a little bit behind Frisco that serves the Dallas-Fort Worth, one of the top AA attendants in, in the entire country. It just was a fabulous success. And then to win the Texas League in the third and deciding game in Tulsa with a Grand Slam home run yeah. in the ninth inning. It, had it been a screenplay, people would have said, no, yeah. this is too obvious. No, you Add some subtlety to this. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I was so pleased when Tony Enzer, our general manager, this summer when the Sod Poodles lost their season, put together that college league, the mm -hmm. Texas Collegiate League, and uh, he got two Amarillo teams to participate. All of these young men were in college programs, and there were 30 ball games out there, 15 for each team, I saw him the other day, and I said, Tony, listen, I really want to thank you. Boy, that was just what the doctor ordered. But you had 30 ball games, and I could only get to 26. <laughs> so I spend a little time at home. You do, and, and I know that you have, uh, you've, you've got a long history of umpiring games and, and being involved with that, uh, even outside everything else that we've talked about. I, I, I wonder if, you know, drawing from your involvement in the community, drawing from your education about Amarillo's history and the things that you've been a part of planning for the future, if, if you could kind of maybe give us a snapshot of where you think Amarillo is right now and, and what, where we need to keep heading, you know, as, as we think about the future, as, as we're talking about, you know, everybody wants to get past 2020. It's been such a difficult year. What are you looking for in the future of this city? Well, I'm so proud of the leadership that we've had at our city and where we are headed. You know, I think our this decennial 
population of Amarillo will probably be around, I don't know, 205,000, 208,000, something like that. And to me, Amarillo is just a the terrific size city. We're big enough to have all of the amenities. You can look at the sports that we have. You can look unparalleled fine arts activities like the symphony, the little theater, uh, the ballet, the opera, and so forth. And But we're small enough to to be a community that supports each other. Um, we really work well. Our people are friendly and giving, and you can get anywhere in Amarillo in about 15 minutes. Yeah. So I think Amarillo is on a track to continue to grow, but I think we, we can keep up with the infrastructure. Um, I think our recent city councils have done a good job of leading us. And uh, so I think our, our future is, is very bright. It'll take us a while to kind of get back with the economy because of this COVID but I think it's really important that we vote this bond issue. Uh, to me, an interesting historical note is that the citizens of Amarillo passed a $5.5 million bond to build a civic center in May of 1964. Now, in May of 1964, I was just finishing the ninth grade at Stephen F. Austin hmm. Junior High. In December of that year, the end of the year, it was announced that the airbase would close. We knew that that was going to create a lot of economic turmoil, uh, and indeed it did. But in 1968, the Civic Center opened with the community having voted for that $5 million bond. And some people might say, well, they didn't know that the base would close. But, you know, you can't keep a base closing as a secret. And the word was out, and we worried. And at the uh, height of the base, there were 25,000 airmen Mm -hmm. scheduled out there as a kid I remember going downtown, you know, with with my mom, and there were uh, airmen everywhere in uniform. And so that was a huge economic problem for us. But my point is that that's been 52 years ago when we passed that bond issue, when we built that civic center. And I think we need to vote, not for me, I'm not going to get a whole lot of benefit out of it, but my grandkids are and my kids are. So I'm hoping that folks of Amarillo step up to that $275 million bond. And I know it's a tough time, but um, Emerald needs to keep moving, and we need to keep uh, adding to the city. We, we need more athletic fields and courts. Uh, a lot of Emerald families, you know, drive to Dallas and Denver and Oklahoma yeah. City and all these places. And I'm one of those families. Money. You're the basketball man. And um, I'm sorry that that bond issue failed, but that's when the commission just threw everything at us, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Couldn't, couldn't uh, get everything to pass. But uh, I think Emerald has a bright future. I think that's really striking to think about because I, I imagine a lot of people don't put the building of the original Civic Center within that context that it did take place in the aftermath of the base closure, which, I mean, it was devastating. If, if anything could have been the death knell for Amarillo, it would have been losing that much right. industry, that many people and that the vote continued and that the progress continued in those very fearful years and months after that. Yes. And we benefited from that for the next 50 years. And so what kind of foresight, you know, did Emerald have to have at that time to keep that in motion? <clears throat> exactly. You know, and so that, yeah, it, it makes me think now, we, we always, and I've had this discussion before, we, we think about the new Civic Center. And we think, oh, well, the plan is just too big. You know, they want too much. It's too expensive, which might make sense if we were thinking about 
next year what we need. But what are we going to need in 50 years? Right. You know, what, right. do, what does that even look like in 50 exactly. years? Exactly. What does Amarillo look mm-hmm. like in 50 years? And I think we really, I think if people will keep their eye on the future, regardless of their age, and, and realize that, uh, you know, we might not be here that long enough to, to use it, but uh, we'll cert- certainly have many other citizens who will, including our families and our grandkids. And I, I really think that that's a good way to look at it because I know that's, I know it's a lot of money. And I worry a little bit about uh, people thinking about the pandemic and thinking about the economy, but Amarillo is a city on the go. And in my opinion, we've just got to keep, got to keep going. Hey, Amarillo is sponsored this week by Wick Realty. Wick helped me buy and sell a home a couple of years ago, and Paul Matney and I recorded this episode on the nice covered back porch that came with the house. In a city filled with realtors and real estate companies, Wick really is one of the best. What I love about them is they're invested in seeing Amarillo flourish economically and socially for all groups of people. So if you're buying, selling, building, looking for investment property, or even if you're a first-time homeowner, talk to Katie Wick or one of her outstanding agents. That's wickrealty.com, W-I-E-C-K. Okay, I'm back with Dr. Paul Matney. Paul, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Uh, I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. You get to answer them, and usually it's the same eight questions I ask most of my guests. Eight Straight is sponsored every week on this podcast by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon on the WT campus. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its extensive collection includes at least eight windmills over the years, which made life possible here in the Texas Panhandle. That's how we got the water that was here. So I know you know about that because you're probably on their board. Um, So you can learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, eight straight questions. First one I want to ask you, Paul, is what's one thing the last few months, whether it's related to the pandemic or the protests, um, what has it revealed to you about the people here in Amarillo? Well, it reveals to me how good the people are here. I remember that our protest march started at City Hall. Uh, The police accompanied that Mm -hmm. uh, march, and uh, it went all the way down 6th Street, and it was very peaceful. Our citizens respect the police and respect the... uh, the fire officials, and, uh, and our community is so giving. The meals that were given, the, the churches that met the need, the relief that we got from the government and the city that we have made sure that uh, evictions and things like this and making sure we don't cut off the water. You know, the, the people in Amarillo are loving and they're giving and they get along and we disagree, uh, but in most cases we can do it in, a, in an agreeable way. So I'm, I'm proud of the way we've handled it. This, this may be an, a, a weird way to phrase it, but like how grateful were you that you were out of the college administrator capacity <laughs> when, when you had to, you know, they've had to make so many hard and decisions that nobody's prepared to make. Nobody yes. has anything in their back pocket, you know, as a response yes. for this. I, I, have, I have seen Russell Larry Hart recently, and I, I can only imagine the meetings that had to go on to try to figure out you know, what are we going to do to keep the doors open? And what are we going to do to keep students safe? And uh, how much is the enrollment going to drop? And, you know, WT is actually up. Yeah. And, and AC is just down, I think, about 7%, Russell told me. And so I really am proud of both AC and WT, the way they've handled that. I, I really am. What does this area have too much of? Wind. All right. Speaking of windmills, right? <laughs> but what's funny is, you know, I'm a, I'm a golfer and not a very good one. But, you know, we go out on the, on the golf course uh, 
and uh, we cut the we cuss the wind, and then the next time we go out, it'll be a kind of a still day, and it'll be so hot, you know, that we'll say, "Gee, where is that breeze that yeah. we usually have?" But we do have a lot of wind here, but that's that's part of the uh, Texas Panhandle, and it blows any pollutants away, other than the smoke from, you know, the west. Yeah, I'd, we actually <laughs> could use some more wind and get that out yeah. of our skies. I think. Right. What does this area not have enough of? Well, I've already talked a little bit about, you know, uh, a new civic center and athletic fields and courts. Um, I, uh, it seems to me when I drive around town, we need to repair a lot of roads. Now, hmm. I know we've gotten ourselves into that because we are a low-tax city, and I think we're very proud of that. But the bottom line is you get what you pay for. And so I know that the commission has a schedule now of repairing streets and so forth, um, and, you know, I mentioned that, and, and we get tired of the orange cones, too. Sure. Uh, so I think we could, uh, we could use roads that are a little bit better. I think we could use uh, athletic fields. Uh, and I think it's time for us, after 52 years, to uh, have a new civic center. Okay. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside this area? Boy, I tell you what, I love the people of Amarillo. Friendly, kind, giving, respectful. I love this Four Amarillo group. I'm a member of one of the churches, four downtown churches mm-hmm. in Amarillo. And that Four Amarillo started, uh, and it wasn't contrived at all. The four pastors of those churches, the Central Church of Christ, the First Baptist, the uh, Pres- First Presbyterian, uh, and also Polk Street Methodist, came together and said, let's find ways to get our congregations together uh, to support each other and to support the city and so forth. Now, you've, you've got to have uh, amazing religious leadership, mm-hmm. but also amazing people uh, in your community to do something like that. So I just think that, that Amarillo people are terrific. Um, and I would describe Amarillo, if you look at our arts community, it's just fabulous. Mm-hmm. You know, we've talked about that a little bit earlier. If you look at, at things to do in Amarillo, sports, you know, we've got a professional hockey team. We've got a professional indoor football team. We have a terrific double-A minor league baseball team. The education that we have, WT and AC and Texas Tech, will be the only city in the country with a pharmacy school, a vet school, and a medical school. Yeah. That just amazes me. Uh, so I think the people of Amarillo, and I think Amarillo is the right size. We're big enough to have amenities, uh, but we're small enough to be able to get to where we're going, you know, with a lot of traffic jams. Although I do notice the traffic, you know, picking up. So I, I just describe the Amarillo people as terrific folks. Okay. What's your favorite local restaurant? Well, I'm not very exotic about that. I, I, let me mention some old ones, if you'll... Okay, I'll indulge that, because I'm sure you, you know some. <laughs> I miss Paradise 2 yeah? on 10th Street. Wonderful Mexican food. I miss Myers Fried Chicken when I was growing up. Everybody remembers it on Georgia, but it also used to be on Route 66 out okay. by the old Northwest Texas Hospital. Uh, and I miss Weininger's Country Pride. You remember Country Pride yep. out there on South Washington? Yes, I so I have members of my wife's family who would come to Amarillo about once a year, and they would visit family. But the only other thing they ever wanted to do was go to Country Pride, and so they would every time. And when they came back after it had closed, like they were devastated. That that was their thing to do here in Amarillo, and they they're from Houston. They had plenty of places to eat that were great yes, there, yes. but they loved that place. Oh, I tell you, we miss that so much. But you know. Uh, Currently, I, I like barbecue, and I think Tyler's and 
Dyers and even Crazy Larry's is great. Uh, you can't beat the Texas Roadhouse or even the Big Texan, you know, for steaks and so forth. So, but I miss those old ones. I, I'm sure you're not alone. Um, what's the most underrated aspect of living in Amarillo? This is, may surprise people. I think it's the weather. Okay. People always talk about, oh, yeah, Amarillo. I, got, I was stuck there in a, in a blizzard one, one winter day. Or, oh, the wind and the, and the dust and the sandstorms you guys have down there. And the, just like the Dust Bowl days, you know. And I think we've got the best weather in, in the state. When I was a disc jockey in Georgetown, Texas, and I'd read the weather, uh, I would look and see what it was doing in Amarillo. Mm-hmm. And I, I do remember one time when we'd gotten about 12 inches of snow and they were taking the doctors to the hospital in police cars and so forth, and I kind of had to laugh at that. But if, if you look at Amarillo, 365 days a year, we have four seasons, and I think we're very fortunate. We enjoy all of them. There's not a better month than October with those cool, crisp mornings and those warm, sunny afternoons. Mm-hmm. We don't have the humidity because we're up off, off the Caprock. And you, you get down on the Caprock. I remember going to school at UT, and I thought, how do these people live down here? And that's before classrooms were air-conditioned. Yeah, And I exactly. remember going to summer school classes. It was terrible. And, and our winters are relatively mild. You know, we get about 20 inches of snow on average. We get about, uh, or I should say about, I think, 18 inches, about uh, 20 inches of rain. So I, I think our weather's terrific. And I tell people everywhere, I say, Amarillo's got the best weather in Texas. Well, and, and you were a weatherman, so you should know. <laughs> when was the last time you went to Paladura Canyon? I went to Paladura Canyon uh, to see Texas. That show started in 1966, and Jason, I bet Sandy and I have taken our family down there. It's kind of a tradition. I bet we've been 15 times. Really? But it was two years ago, and okay. I told Dave Urich, uh, obviously they didn't have the show this year, but I remember telling Dave, shaking his hand after the show, and I said, Dave, best ever. You know, it's a wonderful story about the cattlemen. Uh, but it changed, it's changed a little bit, yeah. you know, over the years, and the yeah. story's been added to, it's, it's tried some new things. And so exactly. it, even if you saw it two years ago, you know, it might be right. different next time right. you see it. When I was a runner a few years ago, I used to go down and we would run the Givens Spicer Lowry Trail. Yeah, excellent trail. House, which is fun. Uh, I, would always get con- I would always be scared of, of running into a rattlesnake or a tarantula. <laughs> it never happened, but I would talk to people and I would say, okay, tell me the best time to run when you're not going to run into a snake. Uh, but it's just glorious, and we take you know, guests and friends, family down there, and uh, we, just, we just don't realize what a jewel the Paladura Canyon is and that it goes 80 miles. Right. Uh, There's, I mean, that's what I think is, is so fascinating to think about is that we, most of us know the canyon if you've been down to the state park, and to think that that's just a tiny percentage of the actual canyon, you know, the yeah. part that we've experienced is just a, a little part of it. And really important history because it was Colonel Cannell, Randall McKenzie in 1874 in September that, that uh, caught early one morning uh, the Indians, mainly Comanche and Kiowa, who were beginning their winter camp down there, and he surprised them and routed them, uh, killed a number of them, but he captured uh, over a 1,000 Indian ponies, took them to Tule Canyon, just east of uh, Tulia, and destroyed all of them. And that's really what ended the roaming of uh, Kiowas and Comanches. That that meant that white settlers could now come in and settle the Panhandle. Hmm. 
because that was the last time that the Indians uh, traveling were following the buffalo would have free reign, and they, they had raiding depredations and so forth, but they were either killed or moved to the uh, reservations in western Oklahoma. So Paladero Canyon with Randall McKenzie uh, has some real history to it as well. Wow. Okay, last question. What's your favorite local coffee shop? I remember when roast, when Craig started Roasters yeah. in Wolfen Village, and I was at Amarillo College, and uh, we had a group of faculty, and we would take a coffee break over in the Student Union building. And I'd heard about this new place and these, this new frou-frou-frou coffee, you know, right. <laughs> lattes and all this. And I remember telling our group one time, I said, hey, guys, we can go over to uh, the uh, Amarillo College Student Union building like we always do, and we can get coffee for 50 cents, but... Let's go to Wolfland Village uh, and pay a dollar and a half. <laughs> it's this new kind of coffee. And, of course, my friends would say, are you out of your mind? But I started going there on the way to, to school, and uh, so I really enjoyed that. But I, I like the palace as well. Uh, so I would say roasters and, and the palace. Okay. That's, that's a, a very diplomatic answer. There. <laughs> um, okay, so that concludes my eight straight questions. Paul, I'd like to end by asking my guests to endorse something. So what is one thing you would like listeners uh, to know about or to experience related to this area? Jason, this will not come as a surprise to you, but I, I really want to endorse uh, the Panhandle Plains Historical Museum. Okay. I've become involved uh, with that museum. I remember going there as a kid, I'm sure as you did, and it's just amazing. It's Texas's largest historical museum. The staff is absolutely fabulous. Uh, of course, they're going through COVID times just mm -hmm. like we are, but it is such a resource. And uh, on the WT campus, supported by WT and the A&M system. And I would encourage people to watch for exhibitions that are down there. They're absolutely first class in every regard. And, and there's I, some really great ones coming up that have not yet been announced, but yes. I, I'm super excited yes. about. And if I could uh, maybe end, if you would allow me, with an historical story. And Let's I think do it. this is sure. why it's important to, to have history museums. The only sitting president, John Mark Ballou and I have tried to research this, we believe that the only sitting president to visit Amarillo was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who came to Amarillo on July the 11th in 1938, and his presidential train car pulled in at the depot down near First and Polk, and uh, our congressman at the time, Marvin Jones, for whom the uh, federal building is now named, right. he had hounded President Roosevelt. He said, Mr. President, you need to come to Amarillo and see what we're doing uh, to get through the Dust Bowl and to get through the Depression. And we're doing a lot of things that your uh, Edward Bennett and the Soil Conservation Organization has recommended. We're doing contour plowing, and we're planting shelter belts, and we're uh, making sure we uh, have our water needs and so forth. And so the president took him up on it. And uh, when he arrived in Amarillo, he came out at the back of the train and addressed the people at the station there. And I was at the gym one morning telling a, a, an older friend of mine about it. And he said, oh, when President Roosevelt came to Amarillo? I said, yeah. He, he said, I remember that. I said, Frank, you remember that? He said, yeah, I was just a little kid, but I was on my dad's shoulders. And I remember the president talking. But the uh, editor of the uh, Amarillo newspaper was Gene Howe. They called him Old Tack. He had a morning column. He had put out a call to all band directors in the panhandle 
to bring brass instruments and come to Amarillo and play for the boss. Okay. You know, they called Roosevelt the boss. And so the banders took, took him up on it. And so they lifted the president with those heavy you know, braces that he had on his right. legs into a touring car that had been driven up from Dallas that day. Lawrence Hagee drove the car. He would later be uh, mayor of Amarillo. And uh, sitting in the back seat with the president were Ross Rogers, our mayor, and uh, Governor Allred, James Allred, the governor of Texas. And they began there at First and Polk. And just as they began the parade, it started to rain. Here we are in the Dust Bowl days. Right. And the good citizens uh, of the Red Cross, the ladies had put together uh, the largest American flag, uh, and they had stitched it together and dyed it, and they were holding it from the Amarillo Building to the old Amarillo Hotel at 3rd and Polk Street. Wow. And as it rained, it got heavier and heavier, and the whole thing just collapsed. The president went down in that 2,500-piece brass band. I think it was about where the palace is. I told Patrick this. They started playing, and he said, Mr. Hagee, stop the vehicle. I want to hear this fine band, and he just loved that. 2,500-piece band is enormous. Yes. Imagine that in downtown Amarillo. Yeah, and, and also at the gym, I was telling another guy one time, and he said, oh, yeah, my grandmother played in that band. I said, you're kidding. He said, no, she's in Dalhart, and her band director took a lot of kids there. But anyway, they proceeded on to Elwood Park, and there is a marker in Elwood Park. It looks like a, a gravestone that said, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt spoke to the people of the Panhandle July 11, 1938, on this spot. And Tim Egan, in his wonderful book, The Worst Hard Times, which is about the Dust Bowl, he indicates in the last chapter of his book that about 150,000 people came to see that. Now That's incredible. <clears throat> I've, I've looked that up. We only had about 48,000 people in Amarillo. But the president had given these fireside chats. People had listened to them, and they came in from all over the Panhandle, all over the tri-state area. And uh, what, what a terrific... That is a wonderful history. And one of my projects now... I've talked to the uh, Michael Kashuba at the City Parks and Recreation. Is that's such great Amarillo history? We need a commemorative marker. We need to get that uh, grave marker up, put on a pedestal, do a little uh, feature of maybe a rock feature and some sh uh, shrubs, and celebrate yeah. that fact. That's a fascinating story. We've we've talked about that in the past. I know um, off off mic, and so I, I'm glad you had the chance to share that because yeah, I agree. It's so many elements of that are just super interesting. And I think Amarillo's done a pretty good job of celebrate our history with commemorative markers. But, um, boy, if, if folks really want to, you know, get interested in Amarillo, the history is fascinating. Yeah, totally agree. Paul Matney, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Absolutely my pleasure, Jason. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks, of course, to Dr. Paul Matney for the interview and to Angelina Marie for her editing expertise. Thanks also to SKP Creative and Wick Realty for sponsoring the show and to Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for sponsoring 8 Straight every week. Supporters of Hey Amarillo through Patreon include executive producers Chris Zelda, Josh Wood, Barbara and Jim Witten, Patrick Burns, Wes Reeves, Wilson Lemieux, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Neil Nossiman, Jess Heredia, Ryan Pennington, and Joshua Rafe. This has been episode 164. My name is Jason Boyette. I'll see you next week.